thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello. Also with Ben Valsler. Hello. And with me, I'm Chris Smith. Now, this week, there are no flies or fleas on me, and that's because a fungus could in future be helping you to keep your pooch flea-free, and we'll be finding out how. Plus, why stressed men take more risks. So that's another reason to avoid white van man, especially when he's in a hurry. And also, the cars that are too quiet. Manufacturers are apparently being told to make some some types of cars noisier so that people can hear them coming. And that's all on the way, Kat. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, it's our science question and answer show. And on the way, we will be finding out why things don't taste too good immediately after you've cleaned your teeth, especially orange juice. Blech. And if you don't believe us, go and give it a try. Also, if identical twins marry each other, will their offspring be identical too? And why does a blob of soap stop glass from steaming up? The answers to all of those are on the way. Ben? Uh, toothpaste and orange juice, I can feel it. Ah, it's a particularly revolting combination. Thanks, Kat. And talking of oranges, we've got an explosive kitchen science experiment for you to try. So we need to squeeze it with the outside out. We certainly don't want the pithy inner pointed towards the flame. That's right. And shall we have a go? Yeah, let's give it a shot. Wow, you just made a fireball come out of an orange peel. <laughs> That's really impressive. It really does flash and burn. I told you it was more flammable than you were expecting. <laughs> and we will tell you how we made our orange powerball fireball later in the show. I heard of Agent Orange, Ben, but uh, I think with orange explosions, you're taking the pith. <laughs> so, so. Boom. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with us, our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, who here has had fleas? Uh, <laughs> Not personally, uh, no. but my dog certainly has. I did once find one in my flat, but we de- didn't have cats at the time. I had no idea where it came well, from. Fleas will jump onto humans if they get sufficiently desperate, and usually because obviously cats and dogs bring them in because they mingle with other animals that have fleas, usually other cats and dogs. And fleas can persist in your carpet for up to years because they can enter a sort of insisted uh, latent state and they can reactivate themselves, come back to life and then jump on you when they sense that a potential victim is around. They're a big problem. They can spread diseases. In the days of the Black Death, of course, they spread Yersinia pestis, and that's bubonic plague. Fleas are a big problem. Also, the numbers of pets that are being kept in the Western world are huge. In America, for example, where there's very good data, we know that there are 70 million dogs in the average homes across America, so very large numbers, and we need good treatments for fleas. So it's quite interesting that uh, a group of researchers who are actually um, based uh, over in America have come up with quite a clever way of solving the problem using a fungus. What they've done is to look at a species of fungus which is called nodulisporium. This is a fungus which lives in the environment. It 
hangs around on bits of old decaying plant twigs and stems so it's not really a generally a, a health risk it's an environmental pathogen but it happens to make a chemical called nodulosporic acid and nodulosporic acid it turns out is a neurotoxin for invertebrates animals without a backbone so little insects like fleas and like ticks the way it works is that it blocks up an iron channel a pore in the cell's Uh, in nerve cells, which is essential for nerve transmission, nerve cells to talk to each other and to talk to muscles. So, in other words, it paralyzes insects if they're exposed to this stuff. But because we and other mammals and other vertebrates don't have this particular channel, we're totally immune to its effects. So what Peter Minke and his colleagues there at Merck Research Laboratories have done is to try to use this chemical to make anti-flea chemicals that can be orally active. In other words, you can feed them to your dog or cat and then they'll pass through the bloodstream and any insects like fleas that prey on the dog by drinking blood will get some of the chemical into them and they'll die. The problem is this nodulosporic acid is extremely complicated as a molecule. If I, well, I would show you the picture, I've got it here, but if I showed you the molecule, you'd say, my God, you know, it's like a piece of chicken wire. It's all these interlinked carbon atom rings very very difficult to make chemically so what the researchers have said is well we know that sort of structure can have an anti-flea effect can we take that structure and add or reduce or remove and tweak a few bits on it to make a molecule which has all the same effects or better but is much easier for chemists to make because this stuff would be so complicated to make it would be totally uneconomically viable and what they've been able to do was to come up with a list of initially over 300 compounds they thought they might be able to make and they whittled it down by doing various tests on fleas and then on mice down to about 14 chemicals and those 14 they then put through dogs and cats so they gave them to dogs and cats and then tested by infesting the dogs and cats with fleas (laughs) and then combing the fleas back out over a series of weeks to see how many of them survived this chemical they they got one one of the compounds was very very active n-tert-butyl nodulosporamide which is one of these derivatives active up to eight weeks against fleas after one oral dose and doesn't seem to have any toxic effects. And it's much better than the other agents that are on the market that are topical agents. These things you have to spray on um, or whatever. And they don't actually necessarily, some of them, have any action against ticks either. This stuff does. So it's amazing to think you can borrow from biology and use a fungus to combat a flea. Sorry, if it's so difficult to synthesise, then why not just grow a load of this mould and sort of milk it out of the mould, and then you don't need to worry about the complicated molecules? Sure. Uh, I think part of the reason is that that in itself would also be very difficult to do because you've then got to grow the mould, get lots of chemicals, because the mould will or the the fungus will secrete a cocktail of chemicals into whatever you grow it in. You've then got to get away from that, just the molecule you want, and cleaning the mixture up will probably also be... A difficult process. Much better, therefore, to come up with a chemical that looks like the starting chemical, using that as your clue, produce something that has all the same effects but much easier to make, but it's going to be therefore pure, and you know that your dog or cat isn't going to get poisoned by something else coming out of the mould. Because some of these fungi and moulds, of course, remember that the reason that LSD has its, uh, its hallucinogenic effects is that's down to a fungus that makes it. It's ergo, which, uh, which grows on various things like uh, wheat and barley, and you can, you can extract the LSD and it, and it makes you have a trip. So you don't want your dog and cat tripping out if, if this mould <laughs> or fungus makes other things. And also, I guess it would be nice if they could actually make it taste of sausages so your dog was more likely to take the... Uh, you could, you could have the species-specific variety. You could have one that tastes of cats so the dogs would eat it, and then one that tastes of fish for the cats to eat. Or, or, or mice for that matter, or blackbird. 
birds knowing what my cats or are like. Or pigeons. They bring home pigeons, don't they? They do, they do. Oh. Well, and it also turns out that stressed men take more risks, but stressed women are more likely to play it safe. And this is according to research published in the journal PLOS One this week. Nicole Lighthall from the University of Southern California Davis School of Gerontology asked volunteers to play a computer game that's designed to measure risk-taking. It's called the Balloon Analog Risk Task. And I thought that today we would do an analogue of the balloon analog risk task. So I've given you each a balloon. Now, obviously, for those of you who are listening carefully, you'll know that Chris is, in fact, a man and Kat is, in fact, a woman. So this hopefully will measure a similar effect to what they were seeing. We've got blue for boys over here and (laughs) orange for girls. So what I I want each of you to do is take your balloon and blow it up as much as you can. And this is what they tell you in... in, As much as you can. So, uh, so, because this might go bang, right? It might go bang. Well, this is the point of measuring your, your willingness to take a risk. Imagine that I was going to give you some money for every puff you put into that balloon. Okay. And the bigger your balloon is, the more money you're going to get. But of course, if it goes pop... I don't get any money. You lose your so money. So basically, you're challenging me to put as much air in this as I dare. As you dare. Okay, as you're right. willing to risk. So both of you give that a go. So what they did in the real balloon analogue risk task... <laughs> you're both doing pretty well. Is they do the same thing but on a computer? I'm quite worried about Chris's one here. Chris's balloon is enormous. It's actually bigger than my head. Which is it's saying much bigger than your head. And Caps is still a little more tame. So I'm forget- feeling faint. <laughs> <laughs> don't forget, you can cash in at any time. Caps still going though. Oh dearie me. On the computer version, you get five cents <laughs> per click, and a click is a puff of air. Chris has clearly gone lightheaded, so perhaps wouldn't be in the best state of mind for this. But basically, on the computer, it would pop at random somewhere between one breath and 128 breaths. So every click you give is increased risk for potentially... Is this a weather balloon you've given me? <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't breathe. <laughs> it is pretty large, this balloon, Ben. I'd say that Chris's is still a little bit bigger than Cat's, though. That's I a foot yeah. across. That is, that is a big I, balloon. I really don't want to bang it in my face. OK, so you're being a little more risk-averse than Chris, who I think is really okay, pushing I'm it. I'm not going any further than that. that I also do want to see Chris bang a balloon in <laughs> his face. I think that would be quite funny. That's true. So uh, what they did with this test is uh, effectively a computerised version of that. If you like, we can see that definitely Chris's balloon is far more stretched, far closer to the limit than Cat's. <laughs> But I've not never seen anymore. a balloon fly around for that long, actually. Okay, so that was I, okay. I was more, I was less risk averse than cats. Yes, indeed, you were more willing to take the risk. And what they found is generally men and women, actually statistically, when they're not stressed, will take very similar levels of risk. But when you stress them out, then what happens is the risks that men take go up and the risks that women take go down. In fact, when they did this on the computer after stressing them by making them hold their hand in ice cold water for three minutes. They may not sound like it would stress you out, but actually they measured levels of cortisol as well, which is a stress hormone, and they found that there's definitely an increase in stress hormones when you have to do this. They found that when women were stressed, they would inflate the balloon an average of 32 times, but when men were stressed, they would pump it an average of 48 times. So this is clearly a a significant difference between the two. Compared with what when they weren't stressed? Compared with being exactly the same when they weren't stressed, which I think was uh, roughly in the middle as well. It was around about 37. So men equal to women, but you stress the men and they they put more air in the balloon. And women put less. Why? Well, they think for a start that this might be analogous to real-life risk-taking. So things like uh, sexy, sexy, risky sexual behaviour 
behaviours, sexy, risky sexual behaviours, of course. Um, Some would say sex is a gamble, but but, depends who you're doing it with. Financial gambling, of course, smoking, illegal drug use. (laughs) Risky driving is another good one. And they think there's an evolutionary background to this because as we evolved, it may have been more beneficial for men to be aggressive in sort of stressful, high arousal, high-risk situations. But women, however, would have been better, especially when they had dependent children, to be a little more risk-averse. And although there may be slightly less to gain from it, there's also a lot less to lose. So it could have been that men evolved to respond to stress with a sort of fight-or-flight response. In effect, you're fighting by putting as much into the balloon as you can. But women evolved a, a more conservative response, which could be very good to keep dependent offspring safe. Do you think this is relevant to the financial crisis? Because if you take a look on the, say, London Stock Exchange, you won't find many women there. It's a very male-dominated environment. And I think John Coates, who we've interviewed on this programme, has made the very point that testosterone is linked to uh, how much money is made on the stock market. The more testosterone a trader has in the morning, the more money he makes by a close of business. Well, that's probably the biological mechanism bef- behind what we're seeing here. Cat's very slowly letting her balloon down, <laughs> trying not to make any noise. Which is I thought that she was just her. doing something else, but there we are. <laughs> so it's the balloon, honest. It is the balloon. So, yeah, that's probably the biological mechanism behind what they're seeing here. And it's very true that, of course, the stock exchange is a very stressful experience. The men are probably taking very big risk, which means sometimes very big gains, but sometimes, perhaps what we've seen recently, very big losses. Interesting stuff. And now from angry people, uh, stressed people to angry people, I'm going to have to let go of this balloon. There we go. That was the balloon, I swear. Anyway, (laughs) uh, talking about angry people, we often describe angry people as having a sudden rush of blood to the head. But actually now research from scientists in the US, published in the journal Cardiovascular Ultrasound, uh, suggests this week that it might actually be true. Now, this is research by Tasneem Nakvi and Han Hyun, who are using ultrasound to look at blood flow in the brain in response to mental stress, and also how the main artery to the brain, the carotid, responds under these circumstances. Now, they, it's quite a small study. They took 10 healthy young people who were aged 19 to 27. They took 20 older people aged 38 to 60, and then they took 28 people with hypertension, that's high blood pressure. And the researchers set these volunteers a series of tasks designed to cause them mental stress. Now, this doesn't involve freezing cold water, but it involves reading, maths tests, pretty stressful, and remembering situations when they were really angry. And at the same time, they used ultrasound to monitor the effects on blood flow in the brain, blood pressure and heart rate and things like that. Now, what they found is that in healthy volunteers, when you do something called stressful, you think about something stressful or you do a stressful activity with your brain, the blood flow increases to your brain through a process called vasodilation. And this is where the blood vessels get wider to allow more blood uh, blood through, you get more oxygen, more nutrients, all that kind of stuff. But intriguingly, in patients with high blood pressure, this is known as, as hypertension, they didn't see this vasodilation and they didn't find these significant changes in blood flow in the brain. And what do they suggest that might actually mean? Well, it's only a very small study at the moment, but it's got some really interesting implications uh, because the researchers suggest that this lack of vasodilation in people with high blood pressure could be a risk factor for strokes. And it's known that a lack of vasodilation in the heart can lead to an increased risk of something called myocardial ischemia. This is a lack of oxygen in your heart muscle. So it would be really interesting to see if the lack of vasodilation in the brain in people with high blood pressure could actually increase the risk of stroke. That's a lack of blood and a lack of oxygen in certain parts of the brain. Now, the results also do raise an interesting question as to whether this lack of blood flow in the brain in people with hypertension could maybe affect their mental performance um, you know, when, it, when they're faced with stressful tasks or, or things to do. Maybe 
uh, could possibly explain some things like like Alzheimer's or other even cognitive diseases. So, you know, there's some really interesting questions raised by this, but it's still very early work. And as you say, small number of people, bigger group of people would be more informative. But it is very important because obviously strokes brain damage because of impaired blood flow to the brain is a major cause of death and disease worldwide, isn't it? So yeah. very it's important to understand that. Really sort of fascinating inklings that this might be, uh, might be at work. Also this week, and this is a lovely little light-hearted story, and we want people to write in, call in, let us know what they think we should do. But electric cars have been accused of being too quiet and therefore posing a risk to people who may be vision impaired. And it's actually prompted the Japanese government to review whether to add a noise-making device to an electric car. So you actually have to make the car noisier. A balloon going off. (laughs) A balloon going off would work. But the thing is, of course, hybrid vehicles, when they're not running on the engine, when instead they're running on the batteries, they make very little noise. But they've actually become Japan's top-selling car in recent months. And actually, because a new, cheaper version of the Toyota Prius has been on sale since May. It's sold already over 200,000 cars. So really, the, the streets are filling with what could be silent killers. So, uh, so <laughs> the Japanese... Are a little bit inflammatory. Uh, but the Ministry of Transport has launched a panel of scholars. They've got vision pair groups, consumers, the police involved, and also car manufacturers, and they're dis- deciding how to get around the issue. They haven't yet made a decision on what noise should be made, but they do need to find a way that will raise caution but not be too offensive for people who live near roads, of course. Talking of being offensive, uh, and it's Japan again, I remember a story about five years ago, and there was this guy who invented a toilet that makes simulated flushing noises, even when you're not flushing it, because lots of people were going into toilets in Japan, and because they didn't want the sound of their own bodily functions to be audible to other users in the toilet, because that would be impolite, uh, they were perpetually flushing the chains in these toilets, and the water consumption was going through the roof, especially in big cities. And so by coming up with what was dubbed the Toilet Queen, I think I wrote about it, actually, you might be able to find it on a website, uh, this is a, a handhold, uh, you, you cover a panel on the back of the toilet with your hand it's just a photo cell and that tells the toilet there's someone sitting on the loo and while that hand cover is there uh, it makes flashing noises out of a speaker (laughs) so that of course this masks anything going on in your cubicle or perhaps the one next door so that therefore you're spared your blushes by the sounds of flushes i'm I'm very poetic sure it wouldn't be long before hackers get in there and change that for completely different sounds handles water music (laughs) that could be a useful way to make you go to the loo (laughs) but but what do you guys think what noises should they make cat suggested balloons perhaps a a whistle or just something fun the sound of an ice cream van that would confuse people when you were little on your bike, you had those big chunks of paper you shoved in the back wheel to make okay. a sort of <laughs> noise. Playing yeah. cards, yeah. Yeah, that, I reckon that. <laughs> that would be perfect, wouldn't it? Well, there you go. Let us know if you think you know what the Japanese government should do about these silent electric cars. <laughs> so, I don't know, from the sublime uh, to the ridiculous, and now to something very serious, uh, taking the tone down slightly. Um, but that's the, uh, the subject of hepatitis. Now, we did cover um, hepatitis in quite some detail in our World Hepatitis Day podcast which you can find on the website. And this week, there's some interesting new work out about the link between hepatitis B infection and cancer. This is published in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute this week. Now, hepatitis B infection isn't really a big problem here in the West, but it's a massive problem in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia. And the really bad thing about hep B infection is that chronic hep B infection, which happens in about 20% of people who are infected with the virus, this really increases the risk of liver cancer. It's a type of cancer called hepatocellular carcinoma. Again, this type of liver cancer is really relatively rare in the West. But actually, if you look worldwide, it's the fifth most common cancer and it's the third most common cause of cancer deaths. And uh, it's 
and more than 8 out of 10 cases of this type of cancer are in East Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa and most of these are to do with Hep B infection. Very very common though, isn't it, Hepatitis B? And all those people who've got it don't necessarily go on to get cancer. Absolutely, and that's what this works about because it is a mystery as to why some people might be more susceptible to developing liver cancer. Obviously with many things linked to cancer it's probably in your genes how susceptible you are. But this new study suggests that it might actually be in the genes of the virus and this is a new analysis from Guangwen Kao and his team in Shanghai. What did they do? Well, they've done something called a meta-analysis and they looked at over 40 studies, including more than 11,000 people infected with Hep B and nearly 3,000 of those who went on to develop liver cancer. And they were looking at whether mutations in the virus itself, in the DNA of the virus, could affect the chances of the carrier of the infection developing cancer or not. Now, there have been quite a lot of studies looking at this, but they've all individually been sort of quite small and not that conclusive. So the hope was by pooling together all the results from these studies um, that Cowan and his team were able to discover that four certain mutations in Hep B were actually strongly linked to the development of liver cancer and were also more likely to crop up in the virus as the hepatitis infection progressed from an infection without any symptoms onto causing liver cirrhosis and then ultimately to causing cancer. So I guess where you're going with this is you're saying this is a way of screening for who might be at risk. We spot those people, that tells us they might be going to get a cancer if they've got that particular mutation in their virus, therefore we should look at them more carefully. Absolutely, and because most of these cases are in the developing world and in East Asia, it's not necessarily practical to, say, screen people with ultrasound or or that kind of thing. But in fact, in these countries, just resources for antiviral treatment are very limited. So you might be able to then say, actually, as a priority, we need to treat this person with antiviral drugs and clear their hepatitis infection, uh, whereas this other person's much less likely to have a serious cancer issue from it. Um, And then also there's an issue, the more people you treat with antiviral drugs, the risk of building up resistance to these drugs. So it's really about stratifying who should get the the first treatment for hep B infection. Certainly an important condition. Thank you, Kat. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Ben Vousler and with Kat Arney. And also earlier this week, it was the World Conference of Science Journalists. Nearly a thousand science writers and broadcasters from all over the world got together in Westminster, not at the houses of Westminster, but just down the road from there, to help each other out and to share some ideas. And here's Laura Soule to tell us a bit more. This week, London played host to the world's biggest conference for science journalists. Science writers and broadcasters from all corners of the globe gathered to discuss the challenges of reporting scientific stories in a media obsessed with celebrity and gossip. Sally Robbins, conference co-director, explained why this year's conference was particularly important. The World Conference of Science Journalists is an international gathering of journalists from around the world so that they can all come together, look at the profession of science journalism, what will happen in the future, how jobs are changing, and to consider scientific issues that are key right across the world. In some parts of the world, particularly in the United States, it does seem to be a profession in crisis. Very few staff positions left in science journalism and on newspapers, lots of newspapers folding all together. By contrast, in other parts of the world, we heard from an Arab science journalist that, you know, things are very much on the up there. And in Africa, there's a big increase in the the profession. So it's uh, quite an interesting contrast. So I think a lot of people are interested to know where things might be going and what the future might hold for them. At first glance, it may seem the challenges for journalists in Africa have little in common with those in the West. But Ake Jimo, from the Development Communications Network in Nigeria, feels that science reporting needs a global perspective. There's a lot of commonalities when it comes to issues around the world. Issues of science is the essence of life. 
And this is an opportunity to learn what is really going on and how do we address those issues. We think globally, but we have to act locally. That is the essence of the whole thing. As well as facing future challenges, the conference was a chance to celebrate the success of journalists who have shaped the world. Andre Picard of Canada's Globe and Mail helped to expose one of Canada's biggest public health scandals. I wrote about tainted blood a lot. It's a story of blood that was infected with HIV and with hepatitis. And this became a big political scandal in Canada because of government inactions and cover-ups and document shredding related to this. What started out as a medical issue became a big social and political issue for us. What we found was the worst ever health scandal in Canada. About 4,000 people infected with HIV AIDS and more than 10,000 with hepatitis. So very large numbers of people infected through a product that was supposed to save their lives, which is blood and blood products. This year's conference saw delegates invited to London. But the venue for the 2011 conference is somewhat more exotic, Cairo. Palab Ghosh, BBC science correspondent and outgoing president of the World Federation of Science Journalists, explained why Egypt was the top choice. Well, we had four really strong bids, Finland, Uganda, Kenya, and a joint bid by the Arab Science Foundation and the American Science Association. It was a difficult choice, but at the end of the day, one of the things that was important to the board was the culture that previous conferences had built, which was about critical, challenging science journalism. The value added that science journalists bring is to ask the awkward questions We felt the vision provided by the uh, joint US and Arab bid would provide that. As the host of the next conference becomes the president of the World Federation, Palab passed his title on to Nadia Elawadi, who has high hopes for the Cairo conference. We're going to bring people to a different part of the world for this conference. For the past three conferences, it's been in the developed world. This will be a chance to bring people to a completely different part of the world. We're We're going to be representing the Arab world and Africa. We're going to be working closely with other Arab countries and other African countries. We really hope that the journalists, when they come to the country, and then hopefully be able to visit the region afterwards, will find different kinds of stories to cover. They'll also be able to learn how we, as journalists in our part of the world, work, what kind of challenges we face and how we overcome these challenges. Delegates at the World Conference of Science Journalists had a great opportunity to meet people from all over the globe, and will return home with fresh ideas to improve science reporting, which will be essential in helping people to face the challenges we will see in the future. That was Laura Soule reporting from the 6th World Conference of Science Journalists, which took place in Westminster in London this week. Uh, Also in the news this week, there are some new insights into swine flu, and also a computer programme that promises to help you beat jet lag in half the time it normally takes. You can find both of those stories on thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. This is The Naked Scientists. It's Chris Smith, Ben Valsler and Katani. We're answering your science questions for you this week. So if you have a science question for us, the email address for the show we love hearing from you is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Speaking of which, Sebastian Brinkman says, uh, great show, I love it. And uh, he's from Russia and he's enjoying using our programme because the transcript, which is also on our website, means that he can listen to the programme and then check back on anything that he missed uh, and it's helping him to learn English. He said he could previously understand about 40% of the show now and understands about 90%. So congratulations 
listens to you. And also David Stevenson, who's from Cambridge. He says, a job superbly well done. He loves listening to our programmes. Just got into podcasts. So thank you very much, both of you. Do drop us a line if you're enjoying The Naked Scientist. Ben, this is a great question. Joseph Hand says, uh, your podcasts are a godsend uh, that, that have successfully staved off brain death during many hours of monotonous work for me. He's listening in Virginia in the US. And he says, got a question. Why does brushing your teeth alter the flavour of substances afterwards. I'm sure we've, we've all experienced this. I know for a fact orange juice is classically the one that tastes absolutely foul, but there are lots of examples of this, aren't there? Yeah, oh, so grim. It's a great effect and it's a lovely, lovely question because I actually had, I had to look this up and as soon as I read the question I thought, that's brilliant, why didn't I look this up before? But it's all to do with a substance in toothpaste called sodium laureth sulphate. There's a few similar chemicals that do the same thing. It's a surfactant which means that it lowers the surface tension of a liquid. They're sort of classic cleaners aren't they yeah you'll find it in detergents you'll find it in all sorts of different things that that rely on breaking surface tension it's in the toothpaste to make sure that you get a good foam from the toothpaste while you're cleaning your teeth and look a bit rabid um but they also (laughs) they also interact with our taste buds in two key ways they inhibit the taste buds that perceive sweetness so whatever you eat afterwards will taste less sweet and then they break up fatty molecules called phospholipids and these phospholipids live on the surface of our tongue and they inhibit the the receptors for bitterness so not only do we get the effect that they're knocking down the sweetness but they're actually boosting the bitterness that you'll get as well so that means anything you eat will taste less sweet much more bitter which is why orange juice in particular which is normally very sweet is really quite foul and there's also menthol in there and that has a temperature effect which in effect it fools your sensory nerves into being more sensitive to cold so fresh orange juice fresh from the fridge may sound great and refreshing be good with your breakfast but it'll taste bitter and it'll be painfully cold I met someone a little while back who's actually Oxford University's a chemist and he showed me a wonderful trick with glucose because glucose comes in two handednesses there's right handed glucose and left handed what that means is it's a bit like if I had a glucose molecule and I put it in front of a mirror you'd have the molecule in one configuration in your hand you'd have the molecule with its mirror image in the reflection and nature is just the same there are both forms of the sugar in nature it just so happens that the human body uses the D form the right handed form he brought with him some left handed glucose and I tasted it and guess what it tasted like I've no Do you think it was idea. sweet Cherries. Well, I'd, I'd assume it would be sweet because it's the same atoms, isn't it, built into the molecule, um, just, just kind of reflected. Not if it can't be recognised. No, it tastes like salt. It was just salty. Oh. It was disgusting. It's just a salty sort of flavour. It wasn't very nice at all because it's the wrong shape to fit into the taste receptors on your tongue, just like Kat says. Cat, wow. here, look, here's something for you to uh, flex your muscles mentally. If identical twins marry identical twins, will their offspring be identical, says Russell Erasmus. This is a really lovely and interesting question. Um, But the answer is, unfortunately, no. But they would be very similar. So what happens when you make babies? (laughs) What time is it? (laughs) How much detail? Be (laughs) careful. When mummy and daddy love each other very much in a special way, you make babies. Um, And you make babies basically uh, by using half the chromosomes coming from mum and half the chromosomes coming from dad. And when you create egg and sperm cells in your ovaries and your testes, you kind of get a random assortment of whatever chromosomes you happen to have so half from mum half from dad uh, and they come together to make a baby and so this process of random assortment of chromosomes would be going on in both sets of parents to make their children but because you're starting from matching stocks as it were because if you've got two identical sets of twins they have identical sets of chromosomes so it's almost like you just have one 
one set of mum and dads. So the children that they produce would not be identical, but they would be very similar, as similar as you are to your brothers and sisters, because effectively it's just like having one set of chromosomes that are randomly assorting and going into babies. Uh, so, yeah, they, they wouldn't look identical, but they would look very similar. In some families, brothers and sisters can look incredibly similar. So it, it would just really depend on the luck of the genetic draw. Because identical twins are effectively na- nature's own natural clones, Nature's aren't clones, they? yeah. And, and if you wanted to have uh, clones on tap, you should become a nine-banded armadillo because they naturally make <laughs> quads. Uh, they naturally split their eggs into four identical derivatives. Uh, which then turn into four genetically identical offspring. I don't know why, but they make quads, quite naturally, that are genetically identical to each other. Bizarre. That sounds like something that we should be trying to find way. For, for <laughs> I don't want to carry four, four babies. Patanis, can you imagine that? <laughs> um, in, uh, in Second Life, you can listen to The Naked Scientists on Second Life, of course. You go to the Scylands in Second Life and look for The Naked Scientists mansion. Uh, hi, everybody there. Science Coffield's listening and says, Ben, do men play, playing tennis take greater w- risks than women playing tennis? Well, I suppose it depends how stressed they are. Um, Perfect timing for Wimbledon week. Of, of course, course, yeah. Uh, assuming that um, the rules of tennis tennis stick out the rules that we've seen with this balloon experiment then i assume that yes when they're stressed men will take greater risks and women will perhaps take fewer risks but it'd be very interesting to see if there's a hormonal effect when you're playing such a, a powerful sport that maybe there are hormonal things that override it but i've got a lovely question for you here chris it's got nothing to do with tennis except for perhaps in the changing rooms afterwards and that's uh, it's from damien in south africa he says he's a big fan and he's recently observed that if you're in the shower and the glass is fogged up if you put a fingertip of soap on the glass the fog will recede so why does that happen ah well the reason that um a window or a cold surface a mirror goes misty and foggy is because when you have a hot shower you have got lots of water molecules in the form of steam or water vapor drifting around in the room these then lose some energy to the cold surface and this enables them to condense. So in other words, instead of being free molecules floating around, they begin to stick together, and they form little tiny droplets on the surface because water has attraction between one molecule and another, so it pulls in other molecules, and it likes to form little droplets, and those droplets tend to be little spheres because that's the best arrangement, so you, you, you maximise your um, surface area to volume relationship so you have the least amount of water in contact with the air for the most volume. Now, what that means is that you've covered your cold surface in a tiny series of little lenses because the water droplets are, of course, behaving like lenses, and this is why it distorts or deforms the light which is coming back off of the reflective surface and you can't see through it. If you put a blob of soap or a smear of soap up and down on a shiny surface like a mirror, you won't get that mist forming. You will get a clear reflective surface remaining for the simple reason that the way soap works is that it gets between the water molecules and it stops those interactions of the water molecules being so sticky. It has what's called a surfactant effect. And what that means is that the water molecules, instead of forming lots of little droplets, will instead spread out to form a thin film which is continuous across the surface. And although a a film of water will refract or bend the light going through it very slightly, there will nonetheless be a straight path for the light in and out and therefore you will see clearly. So this is effectively how anti-misting surfaces work. They have a surface coating which is very attractive to water molecules and instead of forming little droplets they pull, they're pulled into a flat sheet which doesn't bend the light in the same way as the little droplets would. So does grease from your skin do the same thing? Because if you write a message on a window... I was going to say yeah um, because the grease is obviously repellent to water, oil and water don't mix but it is a nice thing to do if you have a clean bathroom mirror and you write something on it with your 
finger, then when your housemate or partner goes into the shower, it says, you know, don't forget to put the tooth back up live back on the toothpaste you get or something like that you know loving message like that okay well now it's time for our kitchen science where dave and i have discovered a very surprising party trick that you can do with fruit okay all you need for this is an orange and a candle and some way of lighting the candle that sounds easy enough do you need to eat the orange first well you need the peel of the orange that's the important bit so first of all you need to open the orange and start peeling you're using a really big orange. I can never remember what type they are, but it's not a clementine or a little thing like that. It's a big, fat orange. Is that what we need for this experiment, or could you use something else? I think all oranges will work, but the ones which work best tend to be the really big ones with a really thick, kind of juicy skin. So it's possible that other things like a grapefruit might work as well? Yeah, they should work as well. I haven't tested them, so I, don't, I can't say for certain, but I think they should work. So once you've peeled your orange... You said we need to find a way to light a candle. Now, that shouldn't be too much trouble for anybody. Do you have some matches? Yep, there's some over here. So I shall get a candle lit while Dave peels his orange. The room smells delightfully orange now, Dave. Cheers, Ben. So, I've now got the candle lit. Dave, how are you doing with your orange? I've eaten some of it. I guess I probably ought to do the experiment now. (laughs) Yes, we can eat it afterwards, but now we have the whole orange peel in one big chunk. We have a lit candle. The room smells of a mixture of sulphurous matches and lovely fresh orange. It's actually a very nice smell, but what do we need to do? Okay, basically you want to take a bit of the peel, get it right next to the flame of the candle and squeeze it. I don't know if you've ever noticed the way sometimes when you open an orange you get that kind of spray coming out of the skin. You want to get that into the candle. So we need to squeeze it with the outside out. We certainly don't want the pithy inner pointed towards the flame. That's right. And shall we have a go? Yep, let's give it a shot. Wow, you just made a fireball come out of an orange peel. (laughs) That's really impressive. It really does flash and burn. I told you it was more flammable than you were expecting. (laughs) So why is it that we're getting what look like fireworks, and certainly fireballs, out of an orange? It's actually all to do with things which want to eat the orange. Uh, An orange is a fruit. The whole point of a fruit is for something big to eat it, get the seeds into its stomach, and then wander off somewhere else, get the seeds out again, out the other end, and then they've got some lovely, nice, nourishing stuff around the seeds for them to fertilise them and get them to a good start on life, somewhere completely different to the original tree. What it doesn't want the orange to be eaten by is either funguses or insects, because they're not going to move the seeds anywhere. So if you have an insect boring into your fruit, for example, a a fly or a wasp of sorts, then actually that's no good for seed dispersal, and ultimately your seeds just fall by your roots, and you end up competing with your children. That's exactly right, and you don't get to send your seeds to those lovely spots where there's no orange tree already, which might be perfect for it. So how does this clearly very flammable orange peel help to disperse seeds? One of the plants oranges have to stop funguses and insects eating them is on the outside layer of the orange, actually the orange bit, there's all sorts of little capsules full of some quite nasty chemicals. One of them is limonene. Um, they're hydrocarbons, and they're very good at killing insects and funguses. So they come complete with their own pesticide? That's right. They're covered in pesticides, so the pests can't get in there. The only things which can get in there are much bigger, and they're big enough to get in and eat the seeds, swallow them whole, and wander off. Okay, so these are obviously very good insect repellents, but why on earth are they flammable? Surely being able to burn won't help them. It just happens that these chemicals are particularly flammable. 
And the reason why they burn so well in this case is that when you squeeze the skin, it squirts them out into sort of an aerosol. This means you've got little blobs of these flammable chemicals surrounded by air. have got a huge surface area. So when they do start burning, they can burn everywhere at once because things only really burn at the surfaces. They burn everywhere at once and burn very quickly in these little fireballs. So not only are there chemicals there that will burn, but the actual spraying mechanism from squeezing the peel will do that. But we eat peel from plants. We put zest into salads and salad dressings and all sorts of meals. Are we not poisoning ourselves? I guess we're not insects, and we're not actually taking very much of these chemicals, so we're probably fine. Whereas if you're an insect and you ate half an orange worth, then you wouldn't be in a good state. (laughs) Do other fruits have similar mechanisms, or are oranges quite unique? Well, things like bananas have got a waxy layer on the outside, so water can't get in to protect them against funguses. You get things like apples, which are really quite acidic, which could discourage various bugs which would want to eat them. But citrus fruits evolved in environments which are really quite harsh, whereby it's very, very hard to live. So you're going to protect anything which you have managed to build as much as possible and make sure it does what it's supposed to do. Fantastic. Well, this really is a simple experiment and a really nice one. But some of these balls of fire are actually bigger than a big orange in the first place. So if you are going to try it out at home, do be very careful and keep your hands below the flame just in case. That's all we have for Kitchen Science this week, and we'll be back with more very soon. And there is a brilliant video of this in action on the website right now. Go to thenakedscientists.com slash kitchen science, click on fruit fireballs. And there's a great video that Dave's done with his favourite <laughs> toy, the high-speed camera. Really impressive balls of fire coming out of something like an orange. But please give it a go at home and see if other fruit are as good. Maybe try a grapefruit, a lemon, a lime, and then get in touch and let us or an know. an apple. An apple. <laughs> <laughs> give, give it a go, yeah. Uh, but get in touch and let us know what you think. Taking appropriate caution, of course. Of course. Uh, candles and things. If you would like to to tell us your results or if you have any questions for our question and answer show here on The Naked Scientists, I'm Chris Smith and also here is Ben Vassler and Katani. The email address for the programme, chris at thenakedscientist.com Reacting to the world's best science The Naked Scientists this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Ben Vassler and with Kat Arney. We've had a question in for you here, Chris, from Dergesh Debashi, and he says, this seems to be a simple phenomenon, but I have a question on it. How do clothes dry? Or even how does water in any place dry up without heating it up? It's obviously that water boils and evaporates, uh, but, you know, how does water just vanish off your clothes when they're wet? Sure, it's a good question. Water has uh, energy. So, in other words, at any given temperature, the water molecules are vibrating or moving around proportional to the temperature of the water. And when we give energy to water sufficient to raise the temperature to 100 degrees, what that means is that the molecules of water are vibrating or moving around sufficiently fast that they can readily break the attraction that's holding them onto other water molecules because water is sticky, and this enables them to escape and get out into the atmosphere as vapour. But you don't dry your clothes at 100 degrees, so what's going on here? Absolutely not. What you are doing, though, if you, say, put them in the tumble dryer or hang them on the line, is that you are putting some heat into the clothes, or just because they're at ambient temperature, they're not at absolute zero, the atoms and molecules therefore have some energy. 
Now, because the energy is not shared equally amongst all the atoms or molecules in anything, in other words, if I come up to you and I shake your hand, I can give you some energy. When the molecules are bashing into each other, sometimes some of them will end up transiently with a load of energy from lots of other molecules bashing into them, and others will have much less. This means that occasionally you've got the odd molecule there that has sufficient levels of energy that it can break the bonds holding it onto other molecules and it can escape. The reason it's uh, slower to dry at less than 100 degrees, or however hot you want to make it, is because obviously it takes longer for those interactions to occur so that the odd molecule gets enough energy to escape. And that's why the sea, for instance, can evaporate water when sunlight falls on it and warms up the ocean without having to boil itself. It's just much slower. If you put a pot on the stove, you give lots more energy to lots more atoms and molecules all at once, and as a result, more of them have more energy more of the time, and therefore they're able to evaporate. So that's the reason. Do you reach a, an equilibrium between water in the clothes and humidity in the, in the air? I assume that when there's more wind blowing, then you've got lower humidity in the air because of more of it's moving past. Yeah, I mean, around the item that you're drying, the air that's in contact with the clothing will become slightly higher saturation of water. So in order to maintain the gradient, in other words, water wants to move from an area, an area where there is lots of water to an area where there is much less water, if you have a wind blowing, this is moving away any molecules of water that get off of the clothing and into the surrounding air very quickly, and therefore you maintain that gradient so the molecules want to move more readily away from the clothing. So this explains why tumble dryers are great, because they're hot and they're sort of blowing air around and tumbling things about. Absolutely. I've got a question from Michael Perry for you, Kat. says, why don't humans have a mating season like other animals? <laughs> they Maybe do. you do, I don't know. It's called Friday night. Um... <laughs> Very regular mating season. <laughs> Three no. times a week. <laughs> Many animals do have a mating season. Um, you know, sort of dogs come into season. We all, If you have foxes in your back garden, you'll very much know that foxes do have a mating season. They're really annoying uh, and um, very prominent about it. But humans don't really. And there's, uh, there's been quite a lot of discussion on the, um, the Naked Scientist Forum as to why this might be. But it's mainly, I think, because humans have evolved not to need one. Um, many animals do have an, a mating season because their food resources or the temperature where they live changes throughout the year. So you want your babies to be born at the optimum conditions where they're going to survive, where there's lots of food to nourish the mother during her pregnancy, um, when there's a nice warm temperature for the babies to be born in so they're not going to freeze, and you know when it's not obviously really wet or really horrible. Um, but with humans, because for a long time we've lived in uh, in habitats like caves, we've had uh, been able to stabilise our temperatures through clothing, we've been able to sort of uh, farm and all that kind of stuff. Probably we don't, we've just evolved not to need a mating season and we have very regular o ovulation that's, that's hidden most of the time. It depends on the papers you read whether you believe that or not. Um, so there's no real need for us to have a mating season. Though I did read an interesting paper. I think that the weights of babies generally born um, change throughout the year depending on whether your mother was pregnant during the harvest season or not, whether your mother had more sort of food during pregnancy. So there may be a hangover from that, but certainly in the modern world there's no... Uh, real need for uh, for a mating season for humans. Just as well. Thank you very much for clearing that one up. Cat, very quick question. Chris is in the Cavendish and says, when you've got 15 metres worth of hose pipe, for example, and you switch off the water, it immediately stops coming out of the end. So where does that 15 metres of water go? It stays in the hose pipe, surely. Absolutely. I, I mean, that would be my thought. I mean, but there's a couple of reasons why. Um, one is that fluids, liquids are incompressible. 
and as a result, when it's a bit like a Newton's cradle, you put some water in at one end of the hose and it pushes an equivalent volume of water out the other end of the hose, you could argue that the water running through the hose has a bit of momentum. But the point is that if you've got a perfectly sealed hose and it's at the same height as the tube at the other end, so gravity's not helping and you don't wait for an air bubble to go in and displace water out, the only way more water could come out is by creating a vacuum between the end of the tap and the tube. And that ain't going to happen and in that's nature. that's not going to happen quickly. And so for that reason, the water turns off because you're pushing something which is effectively incompressible out the end of the tube. So there's no, there's no effective stored elastic energy in there. So if you got, like, a skewer or something and stuck it in the tap end of your hose then the water would dribble out because you're letting air in that end it, of the hose. It would possibly come out quicker. It's a bit like shotgunning a can of drink, isn't it? When when you turn a can of drink I upside down, it goes glug, 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 <laughs> because you have to replace the drink volume that's coming out with an equivalent volume of air, otherwise there'll be a vacuum above the drink. Whereas if you get the can and make a hole in the bottom and then pop the top off, it will empty very, very fast because air can enter easily without having to form bubbles and pass through the liquid to, to let it go through. Shotgun your hose pipe. <laughs> there you go. And back in April, our technology correspondent Chris Valance reported on the UK's first maker fair. It's now gone global and so he's back to tell us more. Africa is gearing up for its first maker fair in August. Just to remind people what maker fairs are, they're places where technology enthusiasts get together and make their own stuff, often out of odds and ends, using microcontrollers and diodes and things that they found and building weird and wacky inventions. I've been speaking to one of the organisers of Maker Fair Africa. His name's Amika Okafor. He blogs at Timbuktu Chronicles. And he told me what Maker Fair Africa was going to be about. At Maker Fair Africa... We are going to celebrate innovation. It's not going to be a staid, trade fairish type event where people walk around and don't prod and poke what is on display. People will have in front of them prototypes, working models, finished products, things in process that everyone from the local metal worker right up to the roboticist have put together and put on display. There's also a grassroots technology that encompasses those who are really just ordinary people using it to to get by in often quite difficult circumstances. Can you say a little bit more about that kind of home-brewed DIY kind of technology that you might find on the streets of Africa? Yes, the DIY home-brewed technology that you're referring to in many ways is actually so much more critical to the lives of these individuals than the DIY types um, in the United States and Europe. These technologies actually form the fulcrum for the maintenance of their daily lives or their incomes. So they're doing it to a large degree out of necessity. And as they say, yes, necessity is the mother of invention, but it's necessity that in many ways forms the foundation for more involved innovations and inventions well, I've been to maker fairs in, in the US and, and in the UK and in the United Kingdom. What will I see if I wander around the African maker fair? You will see the individuals who are hacking cell phones. You will see the people who are, have developed food processing devices that aren't on shelves but actually being used in markets in Accra or in Lagos. So our hope is to have a continuum, a hybrid blend of everything from the lowest of tech, the Afri-tech, if one would use that word, right through to students who are looking at their first robotics competition. 
the more we can do so, the more successful we feel we'll be in, we will be in making Africans across the board understand the importance of innovation as something that is integral to their development and prosperity. So that was Amika Okafor talking about Make a Fair Africa. It does highlight the point that, uh, you know, whatever people's access to resources, that, that basic human ingenuity is, is a, a global phenomenon and this desire to create technology, whatever it's made out of, is worldwide. That was Chris Valance explaining that Maker Fair is going to Africa, giving an opportunity to people from all walks of life to share their talents and their love of making unusual things. Thank you, Ben. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Katani and with Ben Vowsler. It's our science phone. And if you have any science questions for us, chris at thenakedscientist.com is the email address. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. Now, Ben, we've got a question here from Emilio Romero, who says, would a mixture of different venoms, say from all the worst fish and animals in the world, be more deadly than just any given one single venom alone? Well, this depends on exactly what type of venom they all are. Most venoms are actually a collection of different chemicals that have different effects. And there's things like phosphodiesterases, which lower blood pressure. Uh, there's something that inhibits cholinesterase, which makes you lose muscle control. There are things that affect your nerves, that stop your heart, that actually cause your muscles to necrose, to actually break down. So, yes, really, if you were to combine them all, then you'd have something that attacks every single tissue in one go, could stop your heart, stop your brain and break down your muscles and it would be terrible thank you ben cat very quick question for you and they're both sort of similar so we might as well lump these two together william says uh, do magnets have healing properties and hazel smith says can uh, copper bracelets relieve the pain of arthritis uh, the answer to the magnet question is no. There's absolutely no evidence at all that magnets have healing properties. It's all a scam. Um, in terms of copper bracelets, there's a lot of old wives' tales about copper bracelets. And when they've been investigated um, for arthritis, again, the scientific studies don't actually show any significant benefit. There may be psychological benefit. The placebo effect, as we know, is extremely powerful. Um, but no, there's there's no real scientific evidence. Quick one Thank for you. Thank you very much, Kat. Um, there's a question here from Raffaella in Norwich who says, why is it that food that was once red or green or yellow etc comes out one color when it goes out of the human body when it comes out of the human body we know what color she's referring to and the answer actually is that the food itself doesn't necessarily contribute very much to the color of what comes out the back end the reason being that the dominant determinant of the color of what comes out the back end is bile and bile salts what your liver squirts into your small intestine to help you to absorb fats and the reason for that is that there is a chemical which is called bilirubin which is a breakdown product of hemoglobin the stuff that makes your red blood cells red that goes into your intestines and it gets modified by bacteria in the small bowel and as a result of that modification it gets oxidized into a chemical first called urobilinogen which is what gets reabsorbed into your bloodstream and makes your wee go yellow but then it also ends up back in your gut and gets turned into a, an even browner chemical called stercobilin, and stercobilin is the brown stuff that is it makes poo a brown colour. And if you have a blockage in the supply of bile into your intestines from the liver, what that does is actually prevent you from getting any of this stercobilin being made, and you actually do very pale coloured poos. And so you can use that as a, a way to diagnose people who have gallstones or liver problems. Or if you're uh, Gillian McKeith, just to, you know, look at it for fun. Uh, anyway, it is now time to go and have a look at our question of the week with the uh, lovely and gorgeous looking today. You're looking very smart, Diana Carroll. Oh, rubbish. <laughs> uh, anyway, this week we've got a question that could tickle your fancy. Hi, my name's Garbite from London 
and I would like to know why don't we sneeze when we're asleep? So, in the strangest of fairy tales, what would happen to the offspring of Sleepy and Sneezy? So, my name's Matt Jones. I work in the Department of Physiology and Pharmacology at the University of Bristol, and my interest in sleep is in its role in cognition. So, how a good night's sleep helps us to learn and remember things well. Well, this is a bit like asking if the tree falls in the forest, but nobody's there to hear it. Does it make a noise? So. Perhaps we do sneeze in our sleep, but not enough to wake ourselves up regularly or to wake ourselves up fully. And what really concerns me as a scientist is that no one's really done the experiment. So the first thing that sprang to mind, of course, was that it's really a question. Where's the evidence that we don't sneeze in our sleep? I've spoken to friends with hay fever, and they reckon they do sneeze in their sleep on occasions. It's certainly the case that during sleep, we're less responsive to sensory input. So... We're less excitable, as evidenced by us lying around, not doing much, I suppose. So if there is stuff around likely to make us sneeze, it's probably less likely to make us sneeze while we're asleep. But really, whoever asks this question should do the experiment. So find a stimulus, some black pepper, let's say, that makes you sneeze when you're awake, and then waft it, or ask someone to waft it, under your nose while you're asleep, and see if it makes you sneeze or not. Maybe it's just a change in threshold. Maybe it just takes more pepper to make you sneeze when you sleep. What we need are some scientific observations. Can you make your other half sneeze in your sleep? It's possible that this doesn't happen very often, if at all, because our sensory nervous system powers down during sleep, along with almost everything else. As long as air can make it into the lungs, unless you're unfortunate enough to have sleep apnea, why bother waking up? And on our forum, Emilia Romero thought we probably do sneeze on our sleep and said that we do cough. And JNA said that histamine is one of the neurotransmitters that's not released during REM sleep. So we don't sneeze during REM, but may wake up to sneeze in the shallower phases of sleep. And here's another question all about air. My name is Michael, and I'm calling from Austria. Eating a wonderful Thai chicken for dinner, I got curious about the development of chicken embryos within their eggs. How does the oxygen come in? within an eggshell without any placental gas exchange. So, how does air get into an egg? Can you help us answer this question of the week? If you have the answer and you'd like to be included in next week's episode, then email us. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. We have also had a question from Tim Shaw who asks, why, when we sneeze, does it come in twos and threes? I think it's just that the conditions that created the sneeze don't go away, so you sneeze again. I'm not sure, though. If anyone else has any ideas, please get in touch. I'm just trying to think whether... Um, I mean, there was someone I know who, who used to have some congenital problem that used to make him sneeze excessively. I think that there can be a sort of miswiring effect in the nervous system and also certain brain diseases, maybe even brain tumours, can cause compulsive and, and repetitive sneezing. And we know that we have the photic sneeze response as well, so perhaps there's something going on there whereby if you're exposed to bright light, you'll sneeze, but then you're still exposed to bright light, so there's no reason why you wouldn't sneeze again. Possibly. That's also genetic and, and we know that about one person in five has that. This is when you're in the dark room, you go out into the bright light of the street and suddenly, wow, you feel this sneezing fit come on. No one actually knows exactly why it happens, though. If you have an answer, let us know. And if you know how air gets into an egg, which is next week's question of the week, do let us know. But I'm afraid we really have run out of time now, so we're going to have to stop. Thank you very much to our wonderful production team, Mira Synthalingam, Laura Sol, Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. Next week we have a very eye-opening Naked Scientist for you, including finding out how deep-sea creatures can actually see, despite the fact that there is very little natural light down where they hang out. The answer is actually intriguing. They make their own light, but at a wavelength 
that other creatures can't themselves see. And the result is an invisible underwater searchlight, very useful for hunting and spotting who might be about to eat you. We'll find out how it works on next week's Naked Scientist. If you've got any questions for us about that, send them in. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a great week and see you next time. Goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.